Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hacker Talk, the podcast by hackers for hackers. The voice you're hearing right now is me, Philip. I will be your host during today's episode. With me is a fellow Swedish hacker, security researcher for over 20 years, InfoSec Ninja, public speaker, former part of Kaspersky's great team. He can often be seen on the Swedish TV, very recently featured in a Swedish national TV show called Hacka, where he conducts various pen tests on corporations, celebrities, and telecommunication providers. Welcome to Hacker Talk, David Jacobi. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. And thanks for having me on the Hacker Talk. Super cool. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. You've been in the Infotech uh, scene for a while, right? Yeah, I was actually doing a, a lunch meeting today. We talked about uh, you know how long we've actually been in the security industry. And um, it's over 25 years. It's pretty crazy. And it kind of gives away my, my age as well. <laughs> but I've been working professionally with computer security for over 25 years. Wow. But how did it all start? How did you get into technology? Uh, exploring. So it, yeah, the, the funny thing is that when I was a kid, very young, you know, I wanted to be a stuntman. I was not even interested in, in computers. Like I come from a family where my brother is uh, basically a software developer, a gaming developer, and he still is t- today. And my, my dad is a network uh, technician doing sysadmin stuff. And uh, basically there wasn't really anything left for me besides breaking the stuff that they built. So that, oh, that's cool. And, and, yeah, I got kind of interested in, in hacking and computer security when I was connected to BBSs as a kid, because you know, I found all those text files and, and user groups where people were discussing vulnerabilities and, and sharing uh, tools and stuff. And I thought, that is cool. I, I want to be a hacker as well. So I started to read about all these different phone hacks. You know, it's called freaking, you know, different kind of things that you could... Uh, manipulate the phone system to do free calls because you know back in the day it actually cost money to uh to call long distance and so on when the phone system was all analog right it was all analog and we didn't even have access uh you know phone switches or anything like that that came later on and i was like i want to do this i want to build my own uh, freaking box looking into the different text files but the problem was that all these text files was uh, written for the american market and the american hackers <laughs> they didn't work at the swedish uh well, swedish ground so uh that got me you know, like I, I need to figure out how this works and we start to read about more and then i got into more computer security instead of the phone hacking and stuff so kind of the, the phone hacking stuff led me to uh to software development and, and software security Oh, that's cool. So you started in the, in the freaking part, building blue boxes and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I tried to build all these blue boxes and, you know, tried to, uh, I went home whistling around in 2,600 Hertz, and, <laughs> but you know, it didn't work. When I was a kid, then, uh, we started to get this prepaid phone cards and that was like the, when the freaking scene actually took, uh, took a big jump in, in the Swedish underground where, you know, you can manipulate those, those prepaid phone cards to actually contain more money or not uh, deduct the money from the, from the paid card. You know? and, and I started looking into that, but I didn't really, you know, love the fact that it, it was only about the phone systems. I wanted to do more. I wanted to like, okay, what, what about hacking software and writing code and, and that stuff? Cause that's, you know, the, the kind of background that me and my family had, we were like software developers and not hardware hackers. So I was not, you know, very good at soldering or anything like that. And I wanted to, uh, to have a terminal, I want to code. That's kind of what I did. So 
I kind of lived two different lives. You know, I was uh, very, I was very sporty as a kid, you know, hanging out with the cool kids, doing sports, uh, chasing girls and all that. But then, you know, when it was dark outside, I was a different person in front of the computer. Yeah, uh-huh. I was uh, uh, who's that superhero? Yeah, this this super social guy with tons of friends. I'm not your typical nerd. Uh-huh. That's interesting that you don't. Normally, a lot of people in the field fit the the, the stereotype. Yeah, but not um, not not me actually. You know, because I, um, I I don't know why. It's just you know, I I just like doing sports as well. No, I, I did sports and I did computer stuff. That's basically, it, you know, that's, I like both. It doesn't have to be either, you know, just computer stuff or just uh, the, the sports. Mm-hmm. And then this was during how old was I, you know, it, it was like when I was in uh, in normal school. Um, and then when I went to uh, to gymnasium, I started to, to actually work professionally with computer security because I... Um, I remember I, I got this account on a Swedish hosting company because I wanted to host my website. It was for a school project. Yeah. And I noticed that, oh, you're running, uh, you know, an old version of, of Linux and you have all these vulnerabilities. So I, I sent them an email saying, hey, guys, you, uh, you're you running all these different vulnerable versions and, and any user can actually run this public exploit and get root access on your machine and you should fix this. And then I got a reply saying, well, Mr. David, why don't you fix it? You know, we will, we we're willing to pay you 2000 kroner a month, which is like $200. Let's say it's $200 a month to maintain the security of our, our Linux servers. And as a kid, you know, that's also 16, 17 years old to have 2000 kroner a month yeah. tax. It's still a shitload of money. It is. That that's how I that's my first real you know infosec job was as a Linux sysadmin patching servers during the weekends. That's cool. So you got like a shell account, and then you managed to pull off some privilege escalation on it. Yeah, yeah. So you know, but this is a very long time ago. So you can have different types of uh, accounts on a hosting provider. Some just provided with FTP access, but then if you get get like a pro account, you would actually get uh, Telnet or SSH access to the machine. And it's, it's like a shared machine. You had like one web server and one database server and like one file server. But, you know, the machine that you got access to, you know, if you pop a shell of that one, you basically got access to, allow, to the other ones as well. So, uh, yeah, they gave me root access eventually and say, hey, now you have to fix all these vulnerabilities. And uh, so every single day I had to keep track of what the new vulnerabilities that was out there. And, uh, you know, this is back in the day when you didn't really have a packet manager. So I had to you know, recompile the, the source code manually. And, oh, you uh, had everything. to manually fill it all, uh, build everything, you know, compile yep. it from scratch. And- yep, yep, yep. Uh, and document everything. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a proper job, you know, being 16 years old to uh, keep track of. It wasn't like a million servers. I don't know, it was like 10 servers or something. That's cool. Yeah, that was you know, a very good experience to... Because, you know, the, the hacking community is so different from working professional with computer security. It's like some, you basically have to grow up and do real computer security really fast. While the hacking community is, you know, it's uh, not so structured, so to say, as having a, a real job. Yeah, exactly. So you've been, uh, so then it just continued and you, you kept pen testing, you kept building exploits and... Uh, 
Yeah. So this is the, the story was I was having this this job as the assistant admin for this hosting company, <laughs> and then um, after gymnasium, um, there was a magazine called Sakahet and Sakates, which is basically like uh, how do you, how do you translate that to Swedish? It's just like a security, security and principle. No, confid- confidentiality. Confidentiality. Yeah. Um, this is IT magazine where they, uh, some journalist, uh, tried to, uh, basically exposed the 10, 10 Swedish hackers in the, in this magazine. And, and my passport photo was on the front page together with nine other people. I was like, this is not good. This is not wow. good. The info in this magazine was completely wrong as well. So they had. They had my, my nickname and they had my real name, but then the other information was completely wrong. So I actually pinged the, the magazine and said, Hey, I'm, I'm this guy, you know, and the information you, you have about me is completely wrong. Then they invited me to go to a, a conference called Network and Telecom, uh, Telecom Messon in Sista. Network and so, Telecommunication Conference. Yeah, it wasn't in Sista, it was El, It was like a... El, yeah, it was like a networks telecom uh, fair. And I spoke about the hacking community. And that talk led me to uh, get another job as a pen tester. And then that job allowed me to get another job and another job. And eventually, like I was uh, working for this uh, <clears throat> startup in the, called Outpost 24, which did automated variability scanning. And I was building automated variability scanning tools and then that's I was there for eight years, and then that that job led me to another job. I was working as a pen tester at TrueSec, and then after a while, I got a job uh, at Kaspersky, and now I quit Kaspersky after twelve years, and now I'm running my own uh, two companies. So I, I founded two two companies. One is doing pen tests and and uh, security audits and uh, advisory and, and so on. And the other one is is a startup I'm uh, running together with Bahnhof. The Swedish ISP, where we tried to change the way people buy IT security products and security services. Um, so, so that's that's a cool experience. You now, going from you know working as a teenager, following the entire like digital transformation about how the society has changed from being analog, as you said, to now we're basically doing everything with a mobile or a computer or everything's digital today, but. You know, when, when we started to work with computer security, you and me, it, it wasn't that way. It was more analog, you know, you had a modem and, you know, the computer was just basically a dumb device. Uh, now it's completely different. Yeah. The landscape has changed uh, uh, so much. And I think like the, the hacking community is also, it's also kind of changed a bit. I mean, now when Discord is taking over IRC and uh, it's a lot of things happening. Yeah, I refuse to leave IRC. I'm, I'm still on IRC. I'm never going to quit. You know, I'm just avoiding uh, Discord and Slack and all that. So if you need to find me, I'm on IRC. <laughs> yeah, and um, something you're into as well is BBSs, right? Yeah, you know, since BBSs is so close to my heart because you know that's how I got introduced to to computers. Basically, that's you know that that was my I don't know what to say. It's just my passion as a kid. And I was connecting to the BBS, BBSs and I was running my own BBS. Just 
the community that you share information between people, uh, you can create this, this forum, which is not publicly available for everybody. And it's like a magnet for people with the same interests as you are. In my case, it was, you know, computer security and programming and, and, and that kind of stuff. It was like being part of something special. And, um, that internet took over. People did not use the phone line and, and call PBSs anymore. You started to hang out on IRC or, you know, different forums online. And now it's something completely different. But since, I don't know, it's more than 10 years back, I, I've been running my BBSs again on the original hardware, like on my Commodore 64, on my Atari, on my Amiga. So uh, it's just for nostalgia, you know, but the community is still there. That's what's just so surprising. You know, it's not as big as before, but it's still there. That's really cool. So, so you get internet facing BBSs running at home. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of difficult to get internet facing BBSs uh, when you don't have a network card or anything on, on the Commodore 64. So you have to build bridges. So I basically okay. built this modem emulator, which runs on Telnet connections. You can tell it to a Raspberry Pi. And that term connections is then converted to an RS-232 serial connection. So you tell the thing to this Raspberry Pi, and then the Raspberry Pi is making a serial connection to my Commodore oh, 64. Oh, that's cool. 9,600 9, balls per second. That's a, it's crazy. You're sitting at one gigabit fiber connection, and you tell the thing to Commodore at 9,600 baud per second. Crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. But, you know, as I said, the community is, is still there. It's very, very small, but you have people who are still uploading stuff and, and writing messages and communicating over the BBSs. Uh, it's mostly for nostalgia, of course, but, you know, it's, uh, it's something that I'm very proud of, to be honest. Isn't uh, BBSs also very strongly connected to the demo scene? I wouldn't say the demo scene, but I would say to the, um, the, the, the cracking scene, because if you take like a, uh, a Commodore 64 or Atari game, um, specifically Commodore 64, you know, it's, uh, the games are quite small. It's easy to dispute. That's kind of what would happen, you know, back in the day that you, you crack the game and you share that game with, you know, on, on other boards, but the demo scene is, is not about, there's no real reason to keep the demo secret or hidden from the yeah. public. So. So I wouldn't say that the demo scene is, uh, is connected to, to the BBS scene, but the people who are making demos might be connected to the people who are cracking the games. So and that's why, you know, uh, it's the same kind of people as the demo colors also make cracked rows or, you know, intros for different cracking groups. Yeah. They, of course they go hand in hand, but I would say that, uh, you know, the wear scene, uh, <laughs> for retro gaming stuff still exists. It's kind of cool. It is. And all these uh, DCCs uh, network are, are super active still. That I don't know, to be honest. Um, I'm, uh, I'm just connected to the Commodore uh, Commodore 64 BBS stuff. So I, this direct connector file sharing, I, that, that I don't know. I have no idea. Cool. So um, you, you we did pet a lot of pen testing. And then you went to Kaspersky and did you take on the, the blue team hat then? Or did you keep doing pen testing? Uh, Has it always been red teamy, or have you gone a bit uh, back and forth? My passion when it comes to computer security is 
making making security stronger and and helping people. And of course, you can do that with pen testing as well, even that as considered as off offensive security. But the goal is is to hack them and teach them how the hack actually um, was possible, so they can fix that. Um, my job at Kaspersky, <clears throat> uh, it's kind of funny because first I thought working at Kaspersky is not suitable for me because I haven't, I don't know anything about the antivirus industry. My background is doing, you know, um, exploit development, the red teaming. I actually don't know this, this other side, but uh, the knowledge I, I had from doing pen tests and red teaming was very useful when I joined Kaspersky because I, of course, did the product testing for the Kaspersky products, you know, to make sure that the product, their products was, was not, you know, um, easily bypassed or, or anything like that. <clears throat> and then, you know, even that, you know, the, it's, it's very blue hat. My, my job at Kaspersky was to make people aware of the security risks that's out there and making people aware of, you know, um, the cybercrime landscape so we can protect them if people choose to protect themselves with Kaspersky products or anything else. That's for me, it's, it's not important, you know? Um, I just want to make internet a safer place you know, and fighting cyber criminals. And that's kind of that the job that I did at Kaspersky. I was fighting cybercrime, but also doing a lot of presentation and doing research saying, okay, we can find vulnerabilities, we can find problems, not just technical problems, but but one thing that I, that I often talk about is, for example, password reuse, why this is so important. Yeah, as a pen tester, you always check for password reuse, you know? Yeah, it's one of the uh, easiest things. Of course, but it's also very important as a normal individual, like just, you know, you and me or our parents or our neighbors to understand, you know, because if I, if I would talk to my neighbors or my, my non-technical friends about buffer overflows and smashing the stack, you lose them, you know? But Absolutely. But you can, you can talk about pen testing um, or th the same methods that you use when you do pen testing to the broader audience to actually make a difference, to make them more secure. And that's kind of what I've been doing at Kaspersky. I've been taking my pen test background and transforming it in such a way that I can still you know, reach out to the broader audience and teach them about this is what you really have to think about because otherwise this might happen to you. This is the consequences if you don't have different passwords everywhere or if you don't patch your systems or anything um, like that. So yeah, it, for me, it was um, scary in the beginning, but you know, um, it actually worked out very well. Yeah. And uh, this touches on another thing I want to run by you because I often get the question that there's people that are working at various jobs and they're trying to motivate their uh, HR or their management to have a security plan or some kind of uh, security advisory or some kind of security measures in place. Do you have any ideas on how to motivate people that are not technical to start a, uh, or allow a security program? Yeah, I think there's two different things that you can do, which is very effective. One is to talk about consequences and, and the consequences should be aligned with the company that you're running. And if you, if you're a part of the management team, for example, it's very important to understand what the consequences might be for your organization. Because if you do a comparison and say, hey, I read about the nuclear plant that got hacked. Yeah. If you're an e-commerce site selling shoes, who, what, I mean, yeah, no one cares. The, yeah. <laughs> no one cares. It's not the same consequence, right? Even if it's, you know, it, it could actually be the same consequence. 
you cannot you cannot process that information. So you have to speak to the people and say, this is your organization, this is or our organization. This is what we're trying to achieve. This is our worst case scenarios. I mean, if you can if you can speak the same language as management, then you are most likely able to, you know, make them understand that IT security is, is important and, and you're willing to uh, invest money on it. And the same thing goes for the people on HR or sales or, you know, um, the different staff that you have in, in your organization. You have to make them understand how they, uh, how they can be a part of the security process. Um, it's just, it's like raising a kid. If you just goes to a kid and say, this is the 10 rules that you have to follow and I'll be super upset. Uh, if you don't follow those 10 rules, um, you will probably not achieve your goal. But if you can make your children, your employees, understand those 10 rules and say, this is, this is why we have those 10 rules and this is what will happen if we do not follow this, those 10 rules, you are most likely able to you know, uh, have them following, maybe not all of them, but more, more rules than if you don't. The other thing that... that you, you need to do is also talk about um, non-technical things and also the, the consequences. So to motivate people is difficult, but if you can make the persons understand how they can be part of the security process. So it's not just with the IT team and the rest of the world. It's like, we should all be part of that, you know, because it's not the IT team who only opens the emails. Everyone in the company opens emails. And if there's a malicious link or a file or whatever, anybody can open it. So, and, and everybody can be part of the security pro process. Everybody should be part of the security process. But it's too often you, you see people saying, well, that's their job. And everyone's pointing fingers at the sysadmins or IT department. But IT is actually something that everybody should, uh, should be part of. And you can do the same analogy as, you know, the things that you see in real life. What if it was, you know, what if we, when it comes to um, personal safety as crossing the street or, you know, riding a bike with the bicycle, you couldn't just point fingers at everybody and say, I want everybody else to wear a helmet when they ride their bike because then we're secure and, and I don't have to wear it. No, you have to be part of the entire security solution. And if you can get everybody to understand that, you, you, you can come very far, uh, but that is the trick. How do you get everybody to understand that everybody is part of, of the security process, but exactly. nagging, nagging and time is, uh, is good. You know, again, it's like raising a child. If I tell my, I have two kids myself, if I tell my kids, Hey, you need to clean your room. Um, they will probably not do it, but you know. <laughs> After a while, you have to tell them every single time, like you have to clean your room. Otherwise this will happen. Otherwise it will be dirty and said, eventually they will learn. Same thing with, you know, normal people. We have to tell the same message all the time and eventually they will understand. Um, and the message should be so clear that they understand why they're doing it. Yeah. You gotta find good ways to, uh, to motivate them, I assume, to do this. Yeah, that. And I think the security industry stuff is very good at scaring people as well. Like, oh, look at these super creative. Yeah, I think that's like a double-edged sword because it's been misused so much by, by marketing people. And just, yeah, like you said, you're scaring people to, if you don't uh, use our products, then all these bad things will happen, which 
Yeah, I wrote them saying, well, we need you as an as an individual to help us with this, with the computer security. Like we should motivate people and not scare people. Uh, people should understand what the goal is instead of just saying, oh, I should not click this link because then I'll get malware or ransomware or whatever. It's better to motivate people instead of scaring people. That's a good point on it. So something I want to uh, touch upon as well a bit more is uh, you did a talk about hacking consumer devices and uh, you wrote a really nice JavaScript scanner. Can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. So this is maybe that's really cool. Uh, yes. Cool tool. Seven years ago, it was very long when IoT wasn't really a thing. People didn't really talk about IoT. Um, I looked into um, the devices I had at home because I had this idea you know as as an it nerd that oh i'm i'm secure you know i don't have that many connected devices uh, but it turned out that i had a lot of connected devices in my home few devices that i didn't even know that they were connected in my house uh, i forgot that i enabled wi-fi on my tv for example so when i when i find out like oh crap i have so much stuff connected um I, uh, it kind of got itchy in my fingers. I was like, what, what can I do? Because we know that there's vulnerabilities. We read about vulnerabilities in connected devices. But what, again, what is the consequences? What can you actually do if there's a vulnerability in your TV or in your, um, you know, fire alarm or, you know, whatever kind of system that you have uh, connected at home? What can the bad guys actually do? And that's kind of what I base all my, my research on. I want to know exactly the consequences and not just made up, you know, uh, theoretical problems. I want to know for fact, what can I do? But the main question was, okay, I have all these devices, but they're on my inside. They're on my local area network. They're not connected to the internet. There's no API. There's no nothing. They're not, you know, calling back home to the vendor servers. It was like, okay, what, how, how do I hack? IoT devices, if I do not have access to the IoT devices. So I start to think like, okay, what does a typical network look like? Well, a typical network is, well, remember this is six years ago. Um, now people who have IoT devices, they probably have two separate networks and so on. You know, they re- yeah. become more mature. So when you listen to this, remember that this research is, is old and not, you know, brand new. But the typical network back in the day was one, one network. It was like you were sharing the same infrastructure, the same network, the same IP range um, as your smart TV and your mobile phone and your laptop. No network segmentation, nothing, everything. None whatsoever. It was just one big chunk of, of network, you know? Yeah. And you, you got the router from your ISP and then you had all your devices connected to, you know, that, that access point and that's it. That's all you had. But I said, okay, how do I communicate with the devices that's on the network? Well, I can communicate with other devices that's connected on the same local area network, such as a phone or a, a laptop or you know, a, a normal computer. And what do all these devices have in common? They all have a browser. I was like, okay, they all have a browser. How can I get the browser on that device to communicate with the the IoT device in my home. And that's why I decided, well, with JavaScript, 
you can do a lot of juicy stuff. And the IoT devices are really, really dumb. And their, their uh, admin interface is uh, just using normal web, you know, HTTP wasn't, in some cases, it wasn't even HTTPS. Which, uh, I was able to find some, some vulnerabilities in these devices that bypassed authentication phase as well. So you didn't even have to log in to the IoT device to, to exploit these vulnerabilities. It was remote code execution on a, on a CGI script. And um, yeah, it was, you know, no authentication. So it's very easy to automate this process. So I thought, okay, I'll make a website. And on this website, there will be a video. And the video is about two minutes long. It's, uh, the video is about two birds laughing which is super silly, but you know, yeah. my idea was that you were sitting in the bathroom doing number two or whatever. Um, you obviously take up your phone and you click on links and you watch videos, right? That's what yeah, everyone, exactly. So I share some funny video with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought now I have two minutes of your, your, uh, attention or what can I say on, on your device. So the JavaScript started to enumerate internal IP addresses because I also know that um, I can, of course, get the internal IP address from the device, but I can also guess the internal IP space because in 99.9 cases, uh, times of the kids, it's 192.168.0.something or .1.something. So I wrote uh, a script that with just an iframe and a for loop looked for the port 80 and port 443 and went to a specific uh, URL. And if I found a specific image on that URL, I know that that was the, the device that I was looking for. So let's say if you take a, a smart TV, for example, maybe you have uh, the logo of the vendor on a, on a web server, right? And if you yeah. can go to that specific URL, you can say, okay, this image, and you could in theory also check the MD5 checksum, yeah, hash it image or whatever. With something. I, yeah. yeah, you can build, just build an array of the devices that you want to look for that you have vulnerabilities for. So you, you will scan through the, the devices that you know is vulnerable to something. And if you find that device, you send your payload. And that's kind of what the JavaScript did. So I had two minutes of attention where in the background, while you were watching this video, the JavaScript was scanning internal IP addresses for a specific URL. And if that URL returned a specific value, I knew that this is the device I'm looking for, and it will automatically send the payload. And the payload was remote code execution um, on that device. And that code, uh, the payload of that code, basically gave me a, a, a connect back shell on that uh, Linux device. So the IoT, Nice. I was running Linux and I, got, and I got a bash prompt, you know, and from that I could then escalate privileges and get root. And then, you know, it's basically game over for, for that device. It's such a, it's such a nice yeah. way because normally you need to, you need to exploit your way or find your way into the system. But here it's just, no, the browser, it routes traffic to other internal uh, devices and it just works. Yeah, and, and again, like we, we in the industry, we talk about phishing campaigns, right? Yeah. And in phishing campaigns, it's, it's people, when people say phishing, they always think it's about the stealing usernames and passwords, right? Uh, yeah. Trying to get the users to log in and give away. Facebook or yeah. bank or whatever. Yeah. 
But it could also be uh, a link to a website where there's a video and you look at the video and in the background, it's doing stuff, right? Um, spare phishing doesn't have to be about stealing credentials, you know? It could be, it's about, you know, owning the device. And, and one thing with the JavaScript thing is so effective because it doesn't matter if you're on an iPhone or an Android or a computer or whatever kind of other device, as long as it, it can interpret JavaScript, then you're screwed. Yeah. So if this script were on the manufacturing uh, website of uh, a NAS server that, or a NAS device that had some vulnerability and uh, that vulnerability was triggered in JavaScript, it could be. Do you think there's a lot of scanners like that in the wild? No, I don't think so, to be honest. I mean, um, I think it's pretty custom because you still need to have the payload for the exact device that you're attacking. For an exploit, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's very custom. If, the, if, if this attack exists at all in the wild, it's, it's I think, it's 100% custom to uh, the victim, the victimless network. Because, as I said, the, my home doesn't look like your home, right? And if you're going to scan for every single potential device, that you know is vulnerable, it's going to take more than two minutes. So it's, it's better to just, you know, limit it to, you know, a certain product or something that you know, but this JavaScript doesn't have to send the payload. It can also just send back information about which kind of devices that, that you're using. Because what you can do is you can basically connect to, to the, to the different, uh, IOT devices that you have in your home on port 80 or 443 or whatever, and get the basically report back the, the title header or something like the HTML code. And then you can say, oh, you're running a, this type of Synology NAS, or you're running this uh, WRT router at home, you know, whatever kind of device. And then when you know, when you're enumerating the, uh, the internal network, then you can attack the network with the second attack, so to say. But it's still very custom and very... Uh, very targeted, so to say. It's not How did the vendors uh, reply or respond when you submitted these vulnerabilities? Um, so the JavaScript is not a vulnerability per se. I, I was thinking of the, you hacked a couple of, you found some vulnerabilities in your home devices. Yeah, so um, what I found was vulnerabilities in my Sony TV, in my uh, Buffalo NAS, in my QNAP NAS, um, my, um, internet ISP's router and in my printer. Oh. And the, the Sony TV, um, I actually flew over to Japan to meet with the security team at Sony. Oh, that's and cool. And they, they thanked me very much for finding these vulnerabilities and they, uh, they actually gave me another TV, their latest new TV. Nice. Uh, so, I, so I can try to find vulnerabilities in that one, which I also did. And then I reported those vulnerabilities and hoped that I could get an even bigger TV from Sony. But then they said, thank you. And I got nothing back. <laughs> but okay. but they, were, they were still very friendly and very you know, helpful. And, and you know, I'm glad that, that we you know, fixed the vulnerabilities. Then uh, with the Buffalo uh, vulnerabilities and the Seagate stuff, um, they basically uh, said nothing and they silently patched the vulnerabilities. Okay. Uh, no credits, no nothing. They just they just received the the information and they fixed the bugs and they said nothing, basically. Um, I was able to find one guy over LinkedIn because just 
communicating with these vendors is, is a problem, you know? <laughs> they, they don't have an email address. Uh, well, they didn't have back in the day an email address where you say, hey, here's you where you submit bugs. But I was able to, to, to find the CTO of the different companies um, on LinkedIn and then report it that way. Nice. Um, they said that they looked at, they verified the bugs, um, and they fixed it. Uh, but some some didn't even reply. They just fixed the vulnerabilities silently. And what else did I find? Uh, yeah, it was um, some problems with the routers uh, that I reported to the ISP, and I had a nice discussion with them, and they also fixed some stuff. Um, but I would say in general, people were very helpful and very, you know. Uh, they were happy that, that the vulnerabilities was, was reported to them. Uh, I've never had any problems with any vendors being angry or anything, saying, hey, why did you hack my products? Everybody's been very, very happy and, you know, um, thanking me very much for, for finding the, the vulnerabilities. That's awesome. That's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, well, the only thing that if, if there's any vendors listening to, to this podcast, just to, you know, send an email back to the, to the finder of, of the vulnerability and thank them and, and, you know, just don't silently patch stuff because, I mean, it, it takes a lot of time to find these vulnerabilities in some cases. There's a lot of hard work uh, being spent doing, you know, vulnerability research and, and, you know, looking into the products and don't, don't see it as failure just because someone finds vulnerability and don't be angry with them. Thank the people who are actually reporting vulnerabilities because, that the entire underground market where exploits and vulnerabilities being sold uh, is huge, you know? So thank yeah. the people who are not selling the bugs on the black market and, and, you know, maybe give them some free, I don't know, t-shirt or a hat or whatever, you know, something yeah. for uh, actually spending time. Uh, and f making the software better. Yeah, making your software better. So just thank all those people and not just ignore them. Absolutely. Isn't there a bit of problem sometimes with IoT devices that uh, they have a very small like uh, consum uh, consumer lifetime? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with IoT. And, and I was actually in the European Parliament discussing these things. With, oh, cool. To, to, yeah, to try to come up with a... Uh, in Sweden, we have something called but like a certification saying, um, so when you buy a, a device, you should have like the same thing when you buy uh, as when you buy food. It's just like this device is valid until this this date, you know. Um, security updates will be provided until this this date. Um, that would be awesome. You know, yeah. it, it also have like a certain small certification saying that the code or it has been tested by some kind of government institution or something that's saying this product is okay, this product is not okay. Like because sometimes you buy a baby monitor, you know, from eBay or whatever. It could be some cheap. Shit, can I say that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, which can be easily hacked, but then yeah. you can have some more premium products saying, okay, this product has actually been, you know, tested, uh, you know, it's been audited and scanned from, you know, it has this small certification. And because, you know, when you go to an electronic shop and you want to buy a new TV, for example, that TV is brand new for you, but you can buy a TV that's basically one year old and not supported anymore by the vendor saying, okay, this, we stopped supporting security patches for this. They're, yeah. This, yeah. We're not you know, for, updating the kernel or the software anymore. Yeah. We're not updating anything on this device at all, you know, because we are now launching the new version of our TV and that's where we are 
So that's why that's what I mean. Like the security life cycle for this or support life cycle for these devices are are very small. IoT products in general doesn't have a very long support license. It's like six months to a year, maybe. So and that's something that to think about as a consumer. Like if you buy a a device and you connect it at home, how do you know that it's actually going to be updated by your vendor? I think that's information that should be, you know, very easily shared with, with their customer. And I also tried to, to, um, to force the European parliament to have like, you, you know how you have this manual installation manual yeah. on everything that you buy, like you buy Ikea furniture and there's a small, you know, paper how to guide. Yeah. How, how to assemble this stuff. Why don't we have the same thing? It could be kind of generic, but you know, this device has the default username and password. It's admin, admin. You should, according to this checklist, change the default password. And uh, this is how you do it. Um, you should maybe put it on a different network segment, or you should do X, Y, Z. And that guide, as I said, could be very generic, but it will still help a lot, you know? Um, think about the Mirai botnet that we saw a few years ago. It was a botnet based on hacked IoT devices. The way they got access to the IoT devices was through um, uh, brute forcing uh, credentials. Yeah, they, just using default usernames. Exactly, default usernames and passwords. If we would have a guide say you should change or even force the user, so when you install the device, you will log in as admin admin. But you also have to change password. If then you, if you change it back to admin, it's your fault. Then your responsibility is you're responsible for whoever that's taking advantage of, of that device. Um, but just guiding them very easily on how to install the devices, then we would probably have then Mirai wouldn't be as big as, as it was. It would be much more because people would have changed from the default password, for example. Um, but as far as I know, today we haven't seen these guides or anything in the in the box of of uh, you know the, the products. No, it would be nice to have, uh, like you said, like uh, like a stamp or a verifier that this product has been through this checklist and it fulfills all the requirements. Yeah, it could be simple stuff like oh, it's using HTTPS. Uh, it, it forces you to change the default password upon installation. It has uh, software updates until this date. It's just a small, simple checklist. Could be anything, uh, basically. But as far as I know, we don't have the, the certification and we don't have the installation guide uh, for, for most of the products. How do you keep your personal devices up to date? Do you have any good... I just, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't put stuff on my network. That's my, I have okay. a Commodore 64, but I mean, I do, I, I use my vinyl player and I still watch VHS, VHS tapes. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a very digital person that has a lot of stuff connected to my home. Um, I also have different network segments. So uh, my, my laptop and my, my devices that I work with is in one network. And then I have, you know, my internet facing devices on a different network, my Commodore service, my BBS and all that. That's a different part of the network. And I'm, uh, I mean, every single morning when I wake up, I always check for new updates on my machine. I don't, I don't automatically install them, but I verify them that it's something that I need, you know, um, if there are security patches, I'm a bit of a paranoid person, you know, uh, and I, I try to reinstall my machine as often as I can. And, you know, I uh, 
try to bad take hab- precautions. Yeah, bad habit from uh, <laughs> from working in the security industry for a very long time. Yeah, exactly. And uh, something that you've been involved in as well is the uh, Swedish community hack.se. Oh yeah, back in the day, hack, hack.se. How did that start? And what is it? Oh, the, uh, what is it? Is yes, you said it's, it's a community. It's a it's a it's a it's basically a channel like a a, a chat channel on a, something called IRC where everybody can join and talk about IT security stuff. But hack.se is a little bit special because it was like a, it was open for everybody, but you would get kicked out if you were uh, not good enough to participate in the, in the discussion that was going on. So it's, it's random people from Sweden discussing computer security stuff, but it kind of have this, I shouldn't say legendary status, but you know, hack.se was very early in the beginning to, you know, um, assemble some really smart uh, security people. And some of the people that we've seen in the Swedish security scene today, you know, started some of the biggest IT companies in Sweden and um, we've been very involved in making internet safer. But of course, there's also been people from the same chat channel that uh, it's a different approach, uh, starting Pirate Bay and that entire movement. But it was a very early, you know, um, very elitist group of uh, security individuals um, that, uh, yeah, I think it, it's some some way. I really think that the, the individuals, in one way or another, kind of changed the the way we work with computer security in Sweden. Um, to be honest, and it sounds very cocky to do to do so. Of course, it wasn't only hack.se. Uh, it was, of course, more people um, not connected to Hack.se who helped change the way we look at computer security. But it, it, it has some very strong individuals um, who are very strong with you know, computer security and have a big passion for that. Yeah, I think it's very important to have uh, channels uh, such as that. Uh, for me, it was uh, English-speaking IRC channels, but you just have like a community where you can share knowledge and everyone it's kind of liking the same things and you can share exploits and experience with each other. Of course. And I, I know that a lot of people say, well, there were some people in Hacktoist who were cyber criminals and yeah, but it's like, I, I think it's the same thing. You can compare it to a soccer team or whatever. Like if, if one person in the soccer team uh, acts bad, uh, yeah, it kind of looks thin looks like the entire soccer team is doing bad stuff, but it's actually that specific in the individual who is doing something bad. Yeah. It shouldn't affect everybody. And, and of course we had the same problem with people who are, uh, you know, arrested for computer crime and, and so on, but that's those individuals that doesn't affect everybody, you know? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, do you have any favorite pen testing tools? that you think that are open source that you think are uh, underestimated and more people should check out? Very good question. Um, since my, my favorite pen testing tool is basically NMAP. No, no, sorry, NCAT. Not NMAP. N- NCAT. Yeah. Network Netcat. Catalog. Net, no, NetCAT. Um, for uh, just sending payloads or um, receiving, <laughs> receiving payloads. NetCAT is, I, I use that Basically, in every pen test that I do, I use Netcat in one way or another. There's different flavors of Netcat, right? 
Yeah, I prefer Netcat OpenBSD variant. Um, not the OpenBSD uh, operating system, but it's it's called Netcat OpenBSD variant. Um, that's my that's my personal favorite because it has the old parameter syntax, uh, which I know. So every time I use some of the new versions of Netcat, I always like, oh crap, what is the parameter for listening to a port or whatever? But the old school is is the same thing. I'm kind of old school when it comes to pen testing. I don't like to use that many tools. Um, and I mostly focus on on non-Microsoft environments, Unix, Linux, and mainframes and so on. And for me, if I have Python or Perl or and then Bash, then I'm happy, you know, that's kind of what I need. Um, so I don't really use that much open source tools when I do pen testing. Um, I know that uh, Windows people, they're kind of uh, obligated to do so because, you know, passing the hash and, and you know, replaying Kerberos tickets and communicating. Maybe cabs and all that. Yeah, yeah you, you're kind of forced to use those kind of tools because just hacking a Windows machine will tell that the netcat is not really possible. But yeah, but if you get a shell access, uh, a shell account on, on a, you know, a Linux machine, you don't really need that much uh, other uh stuff then then you know um, you're, you're basically the terminal and you can do a lot of stuff you know, and just using the built-in command lines with fine and grep and, and all that stuff you can cause a lot of problems and even get roots in some cases you know um so for me i don't really use that much open source tool but if i if i do if i would do any pen test on a microsoft environment it's like uh i will i would use all those open source tools like as you said mimicat and crack map xa and, and that stuff so as a pen tester is there any like common bad patterns that you see uh that companies continuously repeat yes um there's a few things and that's you know bad network segmentation um it's very, very common like you, you you pop access to one machine and that machine has access to a lot of other stuff but that specifically when it comes to network layer that you can commute from one compromised machine, you can communicate with even more machines that shouldn't be possible. Uh, it shouldn't be technical possible. And then other stuff is password reuse and, and weak passwords that you have. Um, I mean, it's, if you do get inside and you are able to brute force passwords in the, in the uh, Active Directory, for example, just to take your company name and uh, 2021 or 2022 or, you know, uh, summer 2020. It yeah. sounds so silly to say that, but it actually works. You know, it actually does work. There's always one account that has a bad password and you don't have to brute force a lot of passwords to be able to find one, one account that, that works. But with that account, then you can get more information. And I said, how should I say this? I mean, we often store passwords and sessions and credentials on computers in different ways. You store passwords in your browser, you store passwords or, or session cookies. It, like if you're running Teams, for example, Microsoft Teams, how often do you actually log in? You log in once and then you're logged in, right? So if I can capture that, that session, which is stored locally on the machine, then I can log in as, you know, with your account on, on Teams. And in Teams, you might find even more usernames and passwords. It's like with one account, you can actually find even more access to others other systems and i think that's something that you know most companies fail on it's like we know that we shouldn't send 
passwords in clear text to our, our colleagues. And we think it's safe to send it over Teams because it's in quotation internal. But if you do get access to the internal network and you do get access to those session cookies, then you can, you know, log into someone else and, and um, that can give you more credentials to other machines, for example. Network segmentation and as I said, we store credentials everywhere in source code, in your browser history, in documents, in everywhere. So just looking through a uh, uh, normal, like if you would take any company in the world and you would take an, uh, a laptop or a desktop machine from any employee, any employee, um, I'm pretty sure that you would find usernames and passwords in that machine. Saved in browsers and stuff like that. Saved in browsers or, or in emails or anything still local on the machine, but just, you know, you would grab through log files or chat history or whatever. There will be usernames and passwords stored in, um, in on that machine and not talk about you know, browser. The browser is, you know, a very, very, uh, good thing to look for when it comes to pen testing. That's where you have. As I said, sessions and, and you have stored password in your browser and so on. It's very effective. Yeah, you can often do a lot of uh, nice things with uh, browser exfiltration. I, I've noticed. Yeah, it's, it's very, very nice. Um, and I, I, I kind of surprised that not more people talk about it. Like, what? no, because no. I mean, post exploitation, let's say that you do get access to the desktop. What can you actually? Uh, do that's kind of what I did with the Mac OS talk. Is like I was just going to skip forward and just say, okay, imagine that you do have code execution in one way or another. I don't care how you just yeah. have access to the machine. What can you do? Like a post exploitation talk. Like what can you do if you do get access to the machine? Um, and how do you do those different things? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Browser uh, exfiltration and. Uh, Password managers are also a good mine. But yeah, cracking those files, I often find is a pain in the ass. One thing that, that's kind of cool with the Mac, the Mac OS talk that I did is that it's, it's, uh, Mac OS has some nice feature, which allows you to mimic any application and it can also record, um, your cut and paste buffer. So if you do oh. a password manager, um, you can have a small, it's just a small shell script that lies in the background because it's a built-in function on Mac OS to copy and paste everything that you have in your buffer, cut and paste buffer. So if you have a password manager and you're copying the password from the password manager and pasting it into the browser, as soon as you copy the, the password from, from the, uh, password manager, the bad guys have, uh, have the password. You steal it from the buffer. Yeah. That's very nice. From the buffer. Yeah, that's a built-in tool on macOS. It's not some hacker tool or whatever. It's a command that exists on every single macOS installation. It's there. You don't have to do anything. Uh, and that just okay. spits out the, the buffer. Yeah. And then okay. you can just pipe it to, again, Netcat and post it to whatever kind of hacker websites. Just a, just a loop, you know, that goes through every second you, you paste everything that's in the buffer. Yeah, or your I, I did in my exam. The second? A cron job. Insert a cron job into yeah. it. Oh, just a shell script is running yeah. in the background. Yeah, as long as it's running as the same user as you, then that's that's good enough, you know? 
It's a, yeah, it's kind of weird that way that they have all these different things. And um, you can also make the shell script verify that the buffer is changed. So if you have the same content in the buffer and you're checking the buffer every second, you don't want to flood your, your CNC person to say. So it will only send the new content in the buffer if the buffer has changed. Mm -hmm. how, yeah, how does it check that? It, no, it's, it's just a if, if loop, you know? Okay. Yeah. If the buffer, yeah, if the buffer contains the same thing as it did previously, then do not do anything. Only do it if, if the buffer changed. It's just a bash script, nothing cool. weird. Is that the open source or did you upload that somewhere? Which one? The, the bash script? Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I didn't share it. I, I shared it with people who ask for it. Okay. Because um, I, I don't want people to, to go around all right. in the world. I, I told people that this exists and then, you know, I don't have to share the, the code to do that. But uh, we can talk later. Cool, cool. <laughs> it would be a nice one-liner, I assume. Yeah. Or if that's been longer, if that's a forward loop. But yeah. Cool. Where do you see the, the future of, like device security going and consumer security. Do you think people are going to get better at patch management or? It's actually a very good question. And, and just in these, you know, uh, let's say 10 years as I've been looking into IoT stuff, um, it actually become much, much better. The vendors are much better at, at not writing stupid code. Uh, people, consumers are more aware that IG products might be vulnerable to stuff. Um, so we are actually becoming much, much better, but we're also getting much more uh, devices connected to our home. Now it's not just, you know, smart TVs or video gaming consoles. We're talking about you know, sprinkler systems. We're talking about um, all different, you know, everything's being connected now. And every time, you know, someone builds a new apartment complex that is much more uh, digital or computerized, so to say. Smart lights um, and everything. Yeah, yeah, everything is, is you know, and, and that, you know, we are becoming much better. So I, I'm not seeing a very, you know, uh, dark future in front of us. I, I, I really believe in, in that the work that we as security um, professionals do, even if you're a pen tester or a, or a very good software developer or whatever kind of, you know, if you're a SOC operator or whatever, we are doing very good because we are making the, the world a better place. And we're fighting cybercrime much better. We're getting legislations that's helping us uh, fight cybercrime. Yes, we're seeing much more advanced attacks as well, but in the long run, I really have to believe that we're doing good, that we are actually, we, we're not winning, but we're doing very good. Because I, I think it's a war that cannot be won. I compare it with normal crime. Um, we will not. Do you think it's a forever run, sorry for interrupting you, but do you think it's like a forever running cat and mouse game? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, um, if, unfortunately it is, but we have to start securing the things that matters and that's our society like we went from a world when we started to secure devices we had a you know security solutions for devices but we have to stop securing devices and start securing societies instead and and 
the same thing with, you know, your personal security as, as an individual. Uh, yes, it's a little bit about device security, but it's also about your digital lifestyle. Like what's your digital identity? How are you securing your digital identity? Um, you're, a, you're maybe a, a user of Facebook or Twitter or dating apps or whatever kind of, you know, social media. You have no control over that, but you have to uh, work around that and secure your lifestyle. So even if your account to Facebook or Twitter or Tinder or whatever gets compromised, then you are in quotation secure. Your entire digital life is not, you know, completely ruined just because one flaw. And I think with that said, we are becoming better and better and we're having more, more, you know, solutions who can help us move towards that. We see big consulting, consulting companies, we see, you know, government, we see legislations helping us to both make the world better for individuals, but also for the, as I said, societies, you know, um, I know that, you know, a lot of governments are helping the inhabitants, what do you call it? The, the people who live in that region or that country to become more secure, you know? The citizens. Citizens, thank you. And then we also have, we, we also have the support from law enforcement with everything from, you know, your, your, uh, your normal police officer or, or getting more, uh, you know, uh, knowledge about cybercrime and, and identity theft and all that stuff. And then we have, you know, the secret services and the actual military who's also doing a lot of good things when it comes to, to cyber. I think the, we are working in, in the, in the right direction with cybersecurity because it's not just nerds and hackers and, and, and those who are focused on cybersecurity. It's, it's basically everybody who are, you know, thinking and talking about cybersecurity. Do, do you think we're moving to a world where more, more data and data will be open? Because I feel like we moved from like private forums where exploits were shared to then we get like mealworm and now we have all these public exploit websites and now even uh, governments are saying that, hey, we're going to release our tools uh, open source, uh, some of them, such as the NSA with their various forensic tools. Do you think... I actually, I actually did. No, I disagree with that statement. I think we're even more... Uh, Segregated. Uh, yeah, because when was the last time you saw a public working exploit uh, being shared on, you know, some mailing list or so or something? Most of the stuff now that's being found is first reported to a bug bounty program or to the vendor and so on before the public exploit uh, is, is released. I remember like back in the day, there was first an exploit and then there's, there was a patch. Now it's, there's a patch and then people write an exploit for it and they attack everybody who did not install that patch. Yeah. I think, I actually think that with, in the past 20 years, it kind of changed because we are better at reporting things and, and the companies are better also at investigating and, and identifying if someone is, is targeting them with a uh, zero day vulnerability or something. But today, thanks to the, the responsible disclosure programs, I think that people more often report the vulnerability and then talk about the vulnerability when the vulnerability has been fixed. Then back in the day, there was like, oh, I found a, buffer overflow in send mail. Here's my, my proof of concept code. And then people said, oh, we need to fix this. And then they fixed that. 
Yeah. I actually think that we are better at reporting vulnerabilities today than we were 20 years ago, but we still have, then, then on the other side, we still have this entire, um, community with selling and trading exploits that we didn't really have, you know, 20 years ago, there was hackers was trading exploits with hackers. We were not selling exploits for, to the highest bid. Yeah. There were really private exploit brokers uh, out there that are making enormous leg selling exploits. Not in the same way. No, not, not at all. You know, it was, it was more about the community. Now it's more about money. Uh, but I think we're better at, at, you know, fixing vulnerabilities before we talk about them in general. Of course, there's zero days and we've seen all those zero days, but in general, I'm talking very broadly. Like I think most security researchers report it and then they talk about it. Yeah. It ties into, yeah, like you mentioned, the disclosure, uh, policy. Yeah, I remember the full dis- full disclosure mailing list, and then suddenly it becomes like a responsible disclosure. And I mean, yeah, I'm asking you, like, when was the last time you see someone just randomly just post a fully working exploit on a mailing list and say, "Hey, look at this. that"? That that was a while ago. That was not yesterday. No, it it of course happens. I've seen some local uh, previous escalation bugs, but the bug has still been fixed. You know. But the, at the same time as the, at the patches out there, then they publish the, the code. It's very rarely I've seen the code being published, the exploit code being published before the patch. That's, that's uh, not very often compared to 20 years ago. Yeah. I think that ties in. Yeah. Also, like we talked about earlier, the, the connection with the vendor, because I've been, I've been, uh, I've had some clients that I've been doing pen tests for, and they basically said that, yeah, we told the, the guy that submitted the vulnerability to fuck off. And now we, now it's public and we have a really big problem. Yeah, that is a big problem. Like don't tell whoever that's finding the bugs to fuck off. Cause then, yeah. as you said, they will publish the exploit and it will people will, will nice. use that exploit to cause problems on the internet. It's better to just give them, I, I really like the bug bounty concept. That didn't exist when, when, you know, when I was finding vulnerabilities, I got nothing, no, no, nothing for finding vulnerabilities. But as I said before, it takes a lot of time to like do the research, write the code, make, you know, the proof of concept code. I really think that all companies who do get reports from, from uh, the community should give something back. Then it doesn't, have, it doesn't have to be money, but then it could be. Can we merch or. T-shirts. If, if someone well, hacked the PlayStation, give them a PlayStation or, you know, whatever. If someone hacked, you know, whatever, give them something back, whatever it might be, you know, something like if you, if you're a vendor for some software, give them that license for that software for free, like, or whatever, you know, um, something. Yes. Thank them. Absolutely. And also give them creds for finding the vulnerabilities because that's, you know, I mean, at least in, in, in our world, it, it helps. Like if, if you are a security researcher and you can say, Hey, I found those 10 vulnerabilities, then, you know, it, it, it helps with credibility and then, and a lot of things, you know? Yeah. It's only to put on, on your CV or, or website yeah. or yeah, it builds up your credibility. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we're running out of time here. Is there anything else you would like to, uh, talk about or? Uh, jump deeper into 
Oh, I can talk about this for so long. You know, it's uh, it's basically what I do from my wake up until I go to bed is computer security. Um, so maybe we should do a you know a, a part two. We should. We should talk about whatever kind of topics. You know. Absolutely. How do you keep up with the latest uh, vulnerability research and the latest exploits? And how do you stay up to date? A very good question. Um, so um, there's basically two ways. Uh, one way is that I do research myself, uh, which is very helpful because then I, if I'm researching whatever kind of thing, let's say it's IoT security and, and I need to figure out a way to communicate with a specific protocol, I have to read about that protocol. I have to like do the actual research myself. The other way is that I, I really like to share the research that I'm doing. So I go to other to conferences and I talk at, at conferences and, uh, you know, I'm not the only speaker at that conference. They, they say that there's 10 other speakers and I can learn what, whatever they have to talk about. So being a, a speaker going to conferences uh, helps me a lot because I get knowledge for free. Basically, I can take part of, you know, every year uh, all the stuff that other security researchers are, are doing. And that's, that's very helpful. Uh, you're not only doing conferences, you're actually in a Swedish TV show as well. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm often in, in media actually. And, uh, you know, uh, they, it was this TV show called Hackad where me and, and three other, uh, ethical hackers, we, we uh, were able to hack some cool companies and show the consequences of hack and, and what, how it's actually done, being done with social engineering and, you know, password reuse and brute forcing and writing exploits. It was super cool to do that. And it's really an honor to be part of, of that TV show. But then I, uh, I also comment on, you know, in normal media, like in, in the written paper or on, on the news channels, if something happens, because I have a strong belief that you cannot solve computer security with only technology. You need to inform people about the, the, the threat. Have the awareness of it. Yeah. And, and if I can, you know, uh, be part of that, then I'm, I'm very thankful and very happy about that, you know, because if we're going to solve this, if we're going to make people, uh, and then when I say people, I'm not talking about your average security researcher. I'm talking about you know, the, the average Joe, people, the average Joe, then we have to, you know, reach out to them uh, and explain like, okay, now this happened. This is the consequences as we deal with all other media. Like if there's someone being shot or if the stocks goes up or down or if whatever kind of things, there's always someone commenting at that on media. And I really love that there's a strong community with me and, and other, you know, people uh, sharing that. I shouldn't say responsibility, but, but the insights from the security industry to the broader uh, audience, you know, um, I, I like that. There's other people who are doing a tremendous job as well. It's just not, not just me, you know, we're, we're a few people that, that, uh, often it gets quoted in, in media and, and they're all doing a very good job. Yeah. You're all very, very knowledgeable, which is nice to see that, uh, there is this in, in Swedish media. Yeah. And I like the fact how, how people, um, when I say people, I mean us, how, how, how we try to make IT security understandable for, for everyone, you know, um, cause it affects everyone, everyone. So we need to be there for everyone, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's all, it's all such huge part of our lives when everything is connected and online. 
Yeah, I, I wish we could solve everything with code, but but we can't. You know? It's not possible. It's a social problem. It is. It is a social problem. It is in. I don't know where I've read it, but security is a mindset. It's something that's just been stuck in my my head for a very long time, and I don't know where I saw it first, but it's so true. You know, that security is a mindset, and IT security is not so much different from your physical security. You know. Um, there's so many analogies that, that you can do. Like one, one that I really like is, let's say that you cross a street, you know, you, you, you walk um, to this crossing, uh, but you don't look to your left and to your right, then you get hit by a car. Then it doesn't matter what kind of uh, gun or knife or whatever you have to protect yourself um, if you get hit by a car, because the gun or the knife will only protect you against certain threats. And looking to your left or right will protect you against other threats. And the same thing with IT security. Like if you have a strong password, that will protect you against some stuff. But if you have, you know, good patch management, that will protect you against other stuff. If you have a strong mindset and not clicking on every single link that, that you see or, or, you know, that will protect you against some stuff. You need all of that. You need the technology, the tools, like the guns and the weapons and pepper spray or whatever. But we also need the mindsets to to not run out on on a, on a on a road when we can get hit by a car, and we shouldn't just go out on the internet without having a, a strong mindset. Because then, exactly, have the proper mitigations put in place. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So, David, thank you so much for for joining me today. I really enjoyed this uh, episode, and hopefully, we will make. Uh, you will come on Hacker Talk somewhere soon in the future. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. And you're doing a good job. I mean, like I said, we need to reach out to, to everybody and, and we need people like you. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. Also. Awesome. Ciao.